Take your Bibles now, please, and let's remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. We will read verses 13 through 31. Now hear God's word. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. <clears throat> After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will, rebuild, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. <clears throat> then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from whom, from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with, your, with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Let's pray together as we come to consider these words from our God. Father, would you help us this morning to be able to understand, to be able to divide your word rightly, to be able to know its meaning. Holy Spirit, be with us and illuminate the truth of these words to us and convince us of their truth and convict us, Father, by them to continue to pursue your glory and your holiness in our lives by your grace. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth... And may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we come to your holy word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as we continue on together all this month of October in our study of Acts chapter 15, this week we come to these verses. We come to verses 13 through 31. And in these verses, our God reveals to us an all-important corollary and complementary truth to the truth that we've been studying so far throughout this chapter. So far we've been focused on the great truth that we are justified by faith alone, that we are saved by the grace of God alone, apart from works of righteousness that we do to merit salvation. The corollary truth that now James extols to the Gentile believers in Antioch and other places is that we are also sanctified by the grace of God and through faith in Jesus Christ. So you remember that the issue, of course, that we've been 
digging into these past several weeks, the issue that the apostles were, were faced with there in Jerusalem had to do with all these Gentiles being brought into the church. And there were certain Jewish believers in Christ who had been associated with the Pharisees before they became Christians. So they're called the the party of the Pharisees here. And they had a real problem with the Gentiles just being included in the church, in the company of Christians, without requiring them to do certain things first. And specifically, we've seen that they were insisting that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised physically, according to the Old Testament law, and also that they needed to be taught all the details of the Old Testament law and bring their lives into conformity with those standards in order to be saved, they said. And that's the language that Luke records here in Acts 15, that this party of the Pharisees used. These requirements were, were bearing on the salvation of the Gentiles according to the party of the Pharisees, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, they said. All the way up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 15 here. And so the issue at stake had everything to do, as we've seen these past few weeks, everything to do with the very heart of the gospel. Are people saved by the grace of God alone? through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, or are there certain works of obedience that are necessary as prerequisites for salvation that have to be done first in order to merit salvation? And as we've seen, the apostles, especially Peter and Paul and and James here now today, they they are incontrovertibly clear in their response to this controversy that salvation comes for anyone who believes in Jesus, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, salvation comes by the grace of God alone. And so that's where we ended up last week, right? Verse 11, Peter very unambiguously, very clearly says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And that great biblical gospel truth that we've been looking at, especially last week, that we're saved by God's grace alone, that we're forgiven of our sins, that we're justified, that we're declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus alone, apart from anything that we could ever do to merit it, apart from good works of righteousness on our part, that gospel truth has, since the first day it was declared here in Acts, has always prompted people to ask, well then what place do good works have in the lives of people who are saved? Right? If we're saved by grace alone, apart from good works, then good works aren't necessary in the lives of people who have been saved, right? Isn't that what it means? Isn't that the logical conclusion? And that essentially is the question that was being asked here and that prompted a lot of the controversy here and that very often still gets asked. And some people ask that question about whether or not there's a necessary place of obedience in the lives of Christians. Some people ask that question assuming that the answer is is no, there's not. Because they want to argue that there is no necessary place of good works and obedience to God's law in the lives of people who have been saved by grace alone through faith alone. They'll say, well, many people who are saved by grace, of course, they will obey God to varying degrees, but but no one who is saved by grace necessarily has to, or else they're not saved by grace, right? They don't have to grow in obedience to God. Some people actually argue that. Some people actually teach that and have written books about it. And of course, many people, without being able to articulate that kind of a position, they live that kind of a life functionally, right? They want to say they're saved eternally, but they want to live like unbelievers live, like like pagans live, presuming upon God's grace. And then there are other people who ask this question about the place of good works 
assuming that, of course, there is a necessary place for obedience and growing holiness in the lives of God's people. And that's why they have a problem with the doctrine of grace alone, see? They assume that if you teach that salvation comes by grace alone apart from good works, that you're contradicting the necessity of holiness and obedience that God requires. And so they're critical of the gospel of salvation by grace alone. They want to dispute it because they think it negates the necessity of holiness. They think it short-circuits obedience to God's law by removing the, the motivation to obey, right? That's why the Roman Catholic Church, that's why the Eastern Orthodox Church, just to name a couple of examples, reject the teaching of justification by faith alone, and they insist that good works have to be done on the part of the sinner in order to somehow merit salvation from God by cooperating with Him in salvation. Otherwise, they say people have no motivation to obey. People have no motivation to live holy lives unless they're afraid that they're going to go to hell if they don't earn their salvation. Now, that's precisely, see, what the party of the Pharisees were insisting on here in Acts 15, right? And the reason for their insistence was also the same, right? You remember that this party of the Pharisees, this was a group of Jewish people who had come to believe in Jesus, but they had grown up all their lives completely devoted to the teachings of the Pharisees and to observing the teachings of the Word of God in the Old Testament Scriptures. And so, see, their big objection was to all these Gentiles now being ushered into the church, carte blanche it seemed to them, the objection was, well, look, these, these Gentile people have not grown up living according to the teachings of God's Word and God's law. They're pagans in, in every real sense of that word. They, they've grown up in cultures and societies that are saturated with idolatry and, and false religion of every kind. They've been living all their lives in all the fallen sinful patterns that come from worldly godless idolatry. They've been living apart from God. They've been living in sinful pride and unbelief all their lives. And we don't need to do anything about that. So, so the party of the Pharisees are saying, we're, we're just supposed to let them into the church with all this habitual idolatry and immorality and unrighteousness and godlessness and worldliness? It's going to pollute the church, right? And that's why they were demanding that before the Gentiles were included, before they could be said to be saved, they had to first be circumcised, signifying their cleansing from all of that, and they had to learn to obey the laws of Moses first. And so in essence, the party of the Pharisees were insisting that the Gentiles had to essentially become Jewish before they could be accepted as Christians. That's what they wanted. They wanted to effectively Judaize the Gentiles. And in fact, that's how we've come to refer to this particular false teaching, which, which we see here in Acts 15 and also rears its ugly head in other places in Scripture, especially in the book of Galatians, where Paul writes to a group of churches in the province of Galatia that have, that have been influenced by this specific false teaching. They were the ones, remember, who had intimidated Peter and been a bad influence on him. And so Paul had to confront Peter in Galatians 2. And you remember what he said. He said in Galatians 2.14, this is what he had said to Peter. If you, Peter, even though you're a Jew, if you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, right? if you were eating food with these people in Antioch, how can you now force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's, that's what Peter had come to do before Paul confronted him. He was forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews, to be circumcised, to maintain the dietary laws, to keep all the laws of Moses before he would say that they were saved. And the word that Paul uses there in Galatians 2.14, force them to live like Jews, the word there is a single word. It's a verb, eudizin, and it essentially means to make them be Jews. How can you force the Gentiles to be Jews? Literally is what Paul said to Peter. Because that's effectively what, what Peter was doing. 
You've got to become Jewish if you want to become a Christian. And that's what the party of the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to Judaize the Gentiles to make them be Jews before they would all agree to call them Christians. And so here in Acts 15 at this council that met to discuss this whole conundrum of what to do with the Gentiles coming into the church, here the determination was that there's no distinction, right? That both Jews and Gentiles are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus, period. Gentiles don't have to become Jews first through circumcision and law-keeping in order to be saved, in order to be Christians. Which leaves this question, doesn't it? That raised all the ruckus in the first place. Well, then what about all this pagan idolatry and immorality that have characterized their lives? Is all this worldly wickedness now just going to come flooding into the church and corrupt it? And that's, a, that's, a, that's an important question, isn't it? Not just for the Gentiles in the early days of the church, but for all sinners. What about the sin if we're saved by grace? What about the sin that remains in us? If sinners are forgiven and justified and saved as a free gift by faith alone, apart from works of obedience, what about the sin? Does it just all go undealt with? Is it just no big deal anymore? No problem anymore? Can it just continue in the lives of sinners, since sinners are freely given salvation? Well, that's the question, in fact, that gets answered in our text today. And again, it gets unpacked then and fleshed out in all kinds of places in the rest of the New Testament Scriptures after this. So let's take a look here today and see what God's Word teaches about the necessary relationship between gospel justification and gospel sanctification. So verse... 13 picks up where we left off last week. After Peter appealed to God's purposes, right? Peter appealed to God's initiative and work and revelation in saving the Gentiles and including them in his church. And then in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas testified to the many signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles during their journey in Cyprus and Asia which again confirmed God's work in saving the Gentiles and accepting them as his own people. And now in verse 13, James speaks up. And what James does is he attests to the fact that everything that had happened when Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to the Gentiles, all of the acceptance of that gospel, all of the fact that they were glorifying God in his word and praising God for the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, all of that, James now says, was in fulfillment of what God had prophesied way back in the Old Testament scripture centuries before. So all of this, see, Peter's testimony of what happened up in Antioch in Acts 10 and 11, God's initiative, God's plan to cleanse and and save the Gentiles and bring them in, and then Paul and Barnabas' testimony of, of God's supernatural works to confirm that he was doing exactly that, and now James's testimony that in saving the Gentiles, God had fulfilled prophecy and his own promises in his word, All of this is intended to be a massive threefold confirmation to the party of the Pharisees, to the Jews, and to the Gentiles, to everyone, that the gates of the kingdom of heaven had been flung wide open and that God was saving people from every nation and every tongue by His sovereign grace alone, through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ alone. And so that's why James says what he says here. He speaks up, he confirms that this is what God is doing by quoting the prophecy of God that had been recorded all the way back in Amos chapter 9 where God said that he he was going to return to his wayward people and rebuild, he says, the tent of David that had fallen into ruins, restore that fallen tent. We'll see what it means here in a minute. And do that in order that, he says, a remnant of mankind might seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who were called by His name might be brought into the kingdom. Into the tent of David. That's exactly what the uh, prophet Amos 
prophesied. It's Amos chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. This is what God had promised to do all the way back in the Old Testament Scriptures. And James is saying, look guys, don't freak out about it. It's what God said He was going to do. Don't dispute it. Don't hinder it. Because God promised to do it and and we're seeing it happening. We're seeing God restore the fallen tent of David. The tent of David is a, a euphemism for David's kingdom in the Old Testament days. David, remember, had been a king after God's own heart. He, he had been promised by God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that from David would come a line of kings to rule over God's people and that ultimately one of those kings would reign forever over the kingdom of God which would never ever come to an end. That's the, that's the tent of David It's the tent that contains the kingdom that God promised to establish forever and ever through Davidic kingship. But we all know how things went in the history of the Old Testament, right? After David, the whole kingdom gets divided because of Solomon's sin. Most of the kings, especially up in the northern kingdom, but also in the south, most of the kings were evil and wicked did not follow God, promoted idolatry and godlessness all throughout the kingdom. And by the end of the Old Testament, when the people had come back from exile in Babylon and were trying to make ends meet in the ruins of Jerusalem, there ends up not being a king anymore in Judah, in Jerusalem. And so see, the kingdom, the the tent of David seemed like it had collapsed. It was in tatters. It had fallen. It was in ruin which is what God had foretold would happen. He had prophesied this through the prophet Amos. And he had also foretold that after the tent of David fell down in ruin, there would come a day when God would return to His people and rebuild the tattered tent and restore the fallen, ruined kingdom. And of course, there are lots of other prophecies all throughout the Old Testament that foretell how God would do that, right? There's going to be a sprout from the fallen stump of David's tree which would, which would grow up and become a righteous branch. He's going to be a, a descendant of David who will become a suffering servant and redeem people through his own sacrifice and then rule over them in a kingdom that could never be destroyed and would never come to an end. And of course, we know that Jesus is all that. Jesus is the descendant of David. Jesus is that righteous branch. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the crucified, risen, eternal king. He is the king of all kings. And we know that in him, the fallen tent of David has been raised up and marvelously restored. And we know that he shall reign forever and ever and that his kingdom shall never end. Right? Amen? And so as James points out here in verses 13 through 15, when God prophesied that he was going to do all of that, the result of that reestablished kingdom would be that people from all the nations, Gentile people, would be brought into this kingdom. And so James is just going, this is what God promised to do and it is being marvelously fulfilled. Don't dispute it. Don't hinder it. Don't worry about it. Rejoice in it. And again, we know that Jesus, by His sacrifice for sin, by His death, by His resurrection by the eternal redemption that He has purchased, He is this King of all kings who has purchased a people for God from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, a people for His own possession, a kingdom of priests, 1 Peter chapter 2, who will reign with Him forever. So, in all these ways, God has absolutely, undeniably confirmed that His divine purpose is to save people, Jews and Gentiles, by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Peter's confirmed it by testifying to God's initiative. Paul and Barnabas have confirmed it by testifying to God's work in opening the eyes of Gentiles all around Asia 
and to God's marvelous supernatural works among them to confirm His salvation of them. Now James has confirmed it by testifying to the massive, awesome fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, all of which highlights the fact that, that establishing an eternal kingdom of redeemed people from every nation has been God's plan all along. The prophets clearly spoke of it, and now Jesus has accomplished it. And so James draws this conclusion in verse 19. He says, on the basis of all of this that God has done and confirmed, therefore, James is presiding over this council. He's he's acting as sort of the leader here. Therefore, he says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And, And trouble them means... Burden them. We should not burden them with that heavy yoke that Peter had talked about up in verse 12, which we talked about last week. Don't burden these Gentiles. Don't trouble them with this requirement, not just of being physically circumcised, but of being required to merit their salvation by good works like circumcision and the rest of the law's requirements. Don't burden them, Peter said. Don't trouble them, James says. And they both meant the same thing. Don't require anything more of them than the sheer grace of Christ alone in order to be saved from their sins and be called Christians. But notice now that in the very next verse, verse 20, James goes on to say this. He says, but we should write to them to abstain from things that are polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled, and from blood. So, the short story is this. Don't burden them with prerequisites for salvation, with having to merit their salvation by keeping the law. Don't burden them by trying to make them Jews before they can be Christians, but let's do write a letter to them as Christians and tell them, Now they have to do particular things, abstain specifically from some particular things. See, not in order to be saved, but because they have been saved. Not in order to become Christians, but because now they have, and so they must live in accordance with what they are. Now that they are saved by grace alone, James is saying they need to be told to abstain, specifically Things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. What are these things that James makes clear people need to, Gentile Christians need to abstain from? Some people say that James is just quoting Old Testament law here, and so they get a, it, it gets a little confusing. Why, on the one hand, he's agreed with Peter and Paul about not requiring the Gentiles to keep the law of Moses. Don't trouble them with keeping the law of Moses, only to turn around and say, let's write them a letter and tell them to keep the law of Moses. So what's the deal here? Well, the law of Moses is at stake in some sense. But the deal is this, that more particularly, all of these things were all specific ritualistic practices of the idolatrous pagan religions of the day that the Gentiles would have had in their background and in their everyday experience and lives. Things polluted by idols meant meat, animals that were being sacrificed and eaten in specific pagan ceremonies of idolatry as appeasements to false deities In homage to to false pagan gods, people would sacrifice animals to these false gods. Often they would do it by by strangling the animals so that the blood wasn't spilt, so that when they then went and ate the animal flesh as part of the ceremony, they would also be ingesting the blood, which they thought was expiation from their sins before the false gods. See, it was part of this cultic ritual that was common to pagan religions of the day. And so what James wants to urge the Gentiles to abstain from is all of those kinds of 
ritualistic practices of idolatry because it's participation in those idolatrous practices that he is saying now has no place in their lives anymore now that they become Christians, now that they are followers of Jesus. It's really got nothing to do with the meat itself. Paul's going to make that clear in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. In Corinth, people, that, that kind of animal sacrifice was going on in, in false temples, and then the leftover meat would get sold in the marketplace, and there was a big debate in the church about whether it was okay to just go shopping and buy that, that meat or, and eat it. And some Christians felt like since it had been involved in the idolatrous practice, even though we're not involved in it, still the meat is polluted and we shouldn't eat it. And what does Paul says? He says, the meat's nothing. You can eat that meat. It's okay as long as you're not worshiping the idol and the false god by doing it. As long as you're not participating in the idolatry, don't, don't worry about the meat. It's not the meat itself. It's not really even the blood itself. It's the paganism that so many Gentiles were engaging in. It's, it's that participation that was like a lifestyle for so many of them. It was the sexual immorality that so often went with the pagan idolatry of the world and was, was just an ordinary part of the pagan lifestyle as it is in our paganized culture these days. That's what James is saying shouldn't have any place anymore in the life of someone who is a Christian. And so, see, what he's saying is, on the one hand, the Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to be saved. They don't have to be Judaized and circumcised and do certain things in order to merit salvation from God. God gives it freely. God gives salvation through grace alone. And, since God had freely and graciously saved the Gentiles, now, as Christians, their lives have to come to reflect their new identity in Christ, which means they've got to stop living like they used to live. So they don't need to become Jews to be saved, but now that they have been saved, they need to stop being pagans. That's the point. Now that they've believed on Jesus, they need to stop living like unbelievers live. And that's the message for all of us. You've got to stop walking according to the deeds of the flesh now that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The message is this. Holiness for the Christian is not optional. It is necessary. Sanctification is as necessary as justification in order to be acceptable to God. So God doesn't require good works to be done in order to be justified. But now that these Gentiles have been justified by grace alone, they have to be sanctified also. They have to be freed, not just from the penalty of sin, but also from its power and also progressively from its presence in their lives. Now that the sovereign grace of God has given them new life and new hearts, in Christ Jesus their Savior. Now they've got to learn to live according to the holiness that honors God as their Lord. And it's in that sense that the reality of sanctification is every bit as crucial to the gospel as the reality of justification. Not in order to merit it, but as the necessary fruit and product of it. They go together in the redeeming purposes and work of God. There cannot be one without the other. Again, I'd, I'd point you in your bulletins, page 11, to another great quote from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson there. This one is from his book about sanctification, which is called Devoted to God. Great book. Excellent book. If you haven't read it, I'd grab yourself a copy and, and read it. Look at, look at what he says just in this quote on page 11 of your bulletins. He says, Justification and sanctification are both ours through faith in Jesus Christ. It is therefore not possible to be truly justified without also being sanctified and then growing in holiness. And this is why Hebrews says, Sanctification is essential since without it, none of us will ever see the Lord. Hebrews 4.17 
In order to experience final salvation, sanctification is as necessary as justification. Not in order to earn it, but as the necessary fruit of it. Why is this? Simply because there is no justification without sanctification. Simple. Both are given in Christ. Our new status is always accompanied by our new condition. Justification never takes place apart from regeneration, which is the inauguration of sanctification. Isn't that great? Then you just take it all and distill it right down for you and make you just go, could it be any simpler than that? Amen, hallelujah, right? So much great biblical truth packed into that quote. Cut it out of your bulletin and frame it on your wall if you want to. So it's not possible to be justified without being sanctified and then growing in holiness as a result. Our new status before God as as being declared righteous and accepted in His sight is always accompanied by our new condition as being Christians who are being cleansed from all unrighteousness. Justification never takes uh, takes place apart from regeneration, new life, new creation, new hearts which is the inauguration of sanctification, new holy living now. And here's here's what I think is the crucial reality of the first sentence. Justification and sanctification are, are both ours through faith in Jesus Christ. You're declared righteous by God through, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, apart from works that you do to earn it or merit it or, or contribute to it, as the righteousness of Jesus gets attributed to you, accounted to you, imputed to you, credited to you through the conduit of faith alone. And now, as a justified person, through that same faith in that same Christ, the power of God is at work to sanctify you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And this this connection between justification and sanctification, both in Christ, both through faith, this connection is so critical to understand in order for us to grow in holiness in our lives. So many people say the only, the reason why salvation can't be said to be by grace alone, like the Roman Catholics, like the Orthodox, like others, you can't say it's by grace alone, is because now you've removed all the motivation for holy living, right? That's not the motivation for holy living. I better obey or else I'm going to go to hell as a selfish motivation for holy living. And so it's not really holy living if that's how it's motivated. The motivation is this. My God has saved me by His grace alone. Jesus Christ has turned the wrath of God away from me forever. He has loved me to the uttermost by giving Himself on the cross as a substitute and a payment for my sin. And oh, what love and joy and freedom and gratitude that awakens in my heart. Why would I ever want to do the things anymore that drove those nails into His hands and caused His blood to be shed and that dishonor and displease my God? There's your motivation for holy living. As grace trains your heart to love God and be full of gratitude, you'll learn to hate your sin and you'll learn to desire holiness and you'll learn to turn away from self and say, I want to please God no matter what. And it's fuel for sanctification. So, remember, what the party of the Pharisees, with all their legalistic instincts, what they were trying to do was to make sanctification, the prerequisite for justification. Before God's going to say you're clean, you've actually got to get clean, they said. Instead of understanding that in truth it's the opposite, and sanctification has to be the necessary product of justification. A person who is dead in their sins we saw last time, can never do any actual good works. They're all filthy rags. Let alone be able to do enough good works for God to declare them righteous on the basis of those works, which is what justification means. You can't sanctify yourself in order to be justified. It's not possible. 
And so, hallelujah, God declares that we are righteous on the basis of another righteousness. Not our own, but the one that comes from God through faith. His righteousness that is credited to us, imputed to us through faith in Jesus. And when someone is justified by God through faith in Jesus, they are also raised by God with Jesus to newness of life. And the process of them becoming sanctified begins. And that process which the Bible describes as overcoming sinful habits on the one hand and being conformed on the other hand into the image of Jesus' righteousness in the way that we live, that process takes place through faith in Jesus. Who He is in all of His glory. What He's done in all of His grace to save and justify us by grace alone. What does Peter say? 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. My friends, may you grow... How? In grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Christians who have been raised to new life in Christ need to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They grow by becoming increasingly knowledgeable through Scripture of who Christ is of what He's done to save us, and who we are in Him, what our new identity is as new creations in Him, so that becoming increasingly knowledgeable, we become increasingly confident of all of the depth and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God in Christ Jesus through His redeeming work for us. And as that happens, our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires, our choices, our lives become increasingly transformed by this renewing of our minds through grace and knowledge of Jesus. We become increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8 verse 29. We become increasingly transformed into the image of His glory as we are exposed to the knowledge of His glory. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. From one level of glory to the next... And so this process of growth and transformation from lives of sinfulness and to lives of holiness and obedience to God, it's a process that is absolutely necessary. It is not optional, right? And it's a process that we are commanded by God to participate in. Be holy. It's a command. Something we've got to do and not just wait passively to happen to us. Work out your salvation, Philippians 2.12 commands. Put to death the deeds of the flesh, Romans 8.13 commands. Put on the Lord Jesus, make no provision for the flesh, Romans 13.14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, love, gratitude, Colossians 3, right? These are commands, they're imperatives, things you got to do, not in order to earn your salvation, but because you are saved. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews says. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, 2 Peter 1.5 says. Sanctification is not optional. It's a process that is necessary and a process that we are commanded to work at and participate in, not just sit back and and wait passively for it to automatically happen to us and then if it doesn't, we blame God. Well, if He didn't want to sanctify me, what can I do? You can obey. How can I do it? Through faith in Christ and the grace that flows through that faith and empowers you to obey. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Conquering sin and thriving in holiness is work that we are required to do, and it's work that is empowered by God who is at work in us. And the conduit for that power of God to flow is faith in Him and in His Word. And in His grace towards us. And this is why Jerry Bridges used to say over and over and over and over and over again, preach the gospel to yourself all the time, every day. Not only if you're doubting your salvation, of course then. Not only if you're feeling weighed down with guilt and shame, of course then. But when you're tempted, 
when you're struggling with sinful thoughts and habits. Preach the gospel to yourself because the grace of Christ is the power that enables you to put to death the deeds of the flesh and thrive in holiness. And so, back to Acts 15 real quick here. Verses 22 through 29 spell out this letter that was written by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem that had to be sent now to the Gentile believers up in Antioch and then make its way to other Gentile churches. And the letter, let me just summarize, the letter acknowledges that the Gentiles had been troubled by the party of the Pharisees. Their minds had been unsettled, having on the one hand been told that salvation is a free gift of God's grace and then told that they've got to earn it. They're confused, they're unsettled. And then the letter states that James, it states exactly what he had proposed, that that these Gentiles should not be troubled, they should be accepted as Christians, and they should also be counseled to abstain from those things that were associated with their former pagan, idolatrous lifestyles and ways. So the bottom line was that salvation of the Gentile believers is not in question to the council in Jerusalem. We accept them as as Christians, as being saved by grace. And now, affirming that they belong to God by grace, we're going to exhort them to grow in grace, to put off the old ways, and to live in accordance with the will of God. And, And how did the letter go over? Verse 30, it was taken up to Antioch, it was delivered to the Gentile church there, and when that church read the letter, verse 31 says, they didn't go, what? We have to change everything we've always done all our lives? We don't want to do that. That's no fun. That's no fair. Doesn't God love me just as I am? They didn't say that. They rejoiced to hear that their lives needed to change now, and that as people who are devoted to God... There were tangible ways that God had said that that they could live to please Him and honor Him and glorify Him. They rejoiced to be told that because of the redeeming grace of God, they should stop living like they used to live. Because, see, their hearts had been trained by God's grace toward them. And that is how exactly how the process of sanctification works. Hearts that are increasingly confident of the great love and grace of God towards them become increasingly joyful about abstaining from what God hates and growing in what God loves. So, you're a Christian, you're here today, you're worshiping God, you endured the rain to come to church. You're a Christian, you've been redeemed. Do you struggle with the temptation to sin? Yes, you do. All of you and me too. Whether it's lustful thoughts, unloving attitudes, selfish pride, unfaithful, untrusting bitterness and anger and anxiety, whatever it is, we all struggle with the temptation to sin in all kinds of ways. And do you sometimes yield to those temptations and end up doing the things that you know are sinful to do? Yes, you do. Yes, I do. We all do. And then when you yield to that temptation, do you struggle with the shame and the guilt Of having sinned. And when you struggle with that guilt and shame, do you sometimes find in yourself the instinct that was in Adam and Eve? I'm just going to go and hide, and I don't want to be anywhere near God. I'm going to deal with this myself. I'm going to cover it my own way. Do you sometimes doubt that God could actually possibly love someone like you? Do you sometimes struggle with the conviction that's in your mind that in fact you don't really hate your sin the way you ought to? If, if, if any of those things are a yes, and I think all of them are if we're all honest, right? Then your heart, my heart, 
All our hearts as Christians who have been saved by grace alone, they need to be trained by grace for godliness. So when we're tempted, and we often are, and when we fail, and we often do, and when our hearts are either burdened by shame and guilt or are cold and indifferent towards God and burning with selfish, prideful passions, All of those are the times when we must meditate deeply upon the great grace of our God and let it train us for godliness by filling us with assurance and with confidence and with thankfulness and with love. Fertilizing the rich soil out of which holiness grows. So, here's how it works. It's simple. You know um, Romans 3, verses 23 through 24. When I say those, when I say that reference to those verses, can can you can you can you think about what those verses say? Because you you've read them for a long time and over and over and heard them maybe as kids even. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified as a as a gift by His free grace. You know those words. You know those verses. You're familiar with them at least. That's not the first time you've heard them when I read them. Maybe you've memorized them. Well, see, that truth that is so succinctly declared in those verses, that gospel truth that Paul articulates there is so precious and priceless and rich and powerful that we need to meditate on it all the time. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, doesn't Paul say in Colossians 3? And this gospel truth of Romans 3, 23 and 24 needs to dwell in us richly in a way that goes way beyond familiarity and even way beyond memorization and and into the territory of dwelling, abiding. All have sinned. I have sinned. I have fallen short of the infinite, eternal, unimaginable glory of God. And He, this God, who is eternal and almighty and holy, this God whose glory I defied and shunned and rejected, this God who made me in His glorious image, loved me in all my sin and petulance and dishonoring passions loved me from eternity past, and then in in actual history sent His only begotten Son to bleed and to die for me. For, For the one who ran from Him as an ungrateful child, who spurned Him and flouted His holiness in all of my pride. And then let's add verse 25 there from Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are Justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, that's a big word, propitiation. Maybe that's an unfamiliar word. How many of you can use propitiation in a sentence this afternoon? It's okay. It's not a word we use in our culture, but God uses it, and it is a marvelous word. It means to appease. It means to fully satisfy. Last night, I was hungry. It was late. We had had lunch with friends, and I was working on sermon, and it was late, and I was hungry, and the boys were out doing errands, and Wendy kept saying, "Um, how about leftover chicken? Didn't sound satisfying. How about salad? It's raining, it's cold, I don't want salad. Right? Nothing sounded good, right? It didn't feel like it was going to satisfy anything. And then she goes, oh, you know what? There's one more piece, big old piece of of my homemade quiche left over. And, And Wendy's homemade quiche is to die for. And yes, real men do eat quiche. So don't laugh at me. Immediately she said that and my brain and my stomach went, that's it, right? And when I ate it, 
it was it was hot and it was rich and it was fully satisfying. My hunger was satisfied in a way that no salad on the planet could hold a candle to. The quiche was my propitiation. Right? What could ever possibly satisfy? What could ever possibly satisfy the infinitely holy justice of the eternal God over my sin? Over my fall from His infinite glory? What could quench the wrath of God that burns against the unrighteousness of men? Against my unrighteousness? Circumcision? Quiche? Nope. Any amount of good works that I could do? Nope. Never. Only the blood of Jesus can ever fully satisfy the eternal justice and wrath of God forever. And it has, and that is good news. I sinned. And because Jesus came and died, God's infinite justice and wrath towards me is fully satisfied. And so I am fully justified and declared righteous by the Holy God who's... who's Glory I despised. And it's all by grace. It's all a gift. A free unmerited gift that spares me from an endless eternity of unimaginable hell, which is what I deserve, and that guarantees me an endless eternity of unimaginable glory in His presence, which I could never possibly deserve. Good news. Right? Good news that should set my heart up fire with gratitude and thankfulness, right? I got a letter in the mail a couple of months ago from the California State Franchise Tax Board, right? You see that envelope and you just go, oh, great. Sure enough, I open it up. It says, we're pretty sure you owe a lot more money to us. Submit all these documents. So I go and I get all the documents and I submit them. And I go, I don't think I owe you anything, but I'm going to submit it and see what happens. Waiting and waiting for weeks. Kind of, it's in the back of my mind. I'm anxious about it. Then, just the other day, I get another letter from going, oh, sorry, never mind, our bad. You don't owe us anything. Right? Isn't that, I thought that was good news. That is good news, but how much better is the news that the holy God of creation says, my son paid all your debts and you don't owe me anything. Right? Listen to this. Romans chapter 5, Paul says, verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Amen? So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, are you ever tempted to say there's, you know, there's just too much sin in me for the grace of God to cover? I mean, do you believe God's word is true? Where sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. That is good news. You cannot out-sin God. God loves me. God forgives me. God accepts me in spite of me and all my sin. Because as much as it is and as bad as it is, His grace abounds all the more. So does that mean that my sin doesn't matter? That because of His superabounding grace, I can just keep on sinning? By no means, Paul will go on and say in Romans chapter 6. Because if that's your attitude... You don't trust the abounding grace of God at all. The superabounding grace of God that is greater than all my sin is the power that conquers my sin and delivers me from its dominion so that even though it remains in me and tempts me, I, it cannot reign over me. It cannot make me follow its passions and sin. And so I must not let it reign in my mortal body because Jesus died for me and delivered me from its dominion and from death. So see, this is how it works. When I'm all focused on the things of this world, its passing and corrupt pleasures and all the troubles and trials, when I'm all focused on myself and how I feel about circumstances and things and on whatever sinful desires are lurking around in my flesh still, on what I want, on what I feel, when I'm focused on the world and on me, then I'm vulnerable to temptation, to desires, to sinful attitudes of my sinful flesh. 
And when I'm vulnerable to those desires, I'm vulnerable to yielding to them and falling into sin. But when I'm focused on the great grace of the gospel and the reality that Jesus' blood and death satisfied all of God's wrath for my sin, and that as much sin as there is in me, God's mercy and grace is always more. When my heart is filled with the wonder of the free gift of justification and this great love that God has for me, and that He forgives me and accepts me, I don't want to sin. I want to do something for Him who did so much for me. You see, that God's grace that has saved us from sin's penalty also frees us from sin's power through faith and trains us for godliness. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul says exactly this, as explicitly as it can be said. You ready? You need help overcoming temptation and sin? You feel like as a Christian that you're kind of like a, 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 an out-of-shape, fat, flabby sinner who needs a personal trainer to come along and whip you into shape for godliness? Because you can't do it yourself? Me too. Listen. Titus 2, 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, even in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous, zealous for good works. God's grace has brought eternal salvation to all people, Jews and Gentiles, sinners of all kinds, me, you. God's grace has brought salvation. And that same grace, through the same faith, trains us when we're focused on it to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It builds the muscles of my soul to renounce, to refuse to give in to ungodliness, to worldly sinful passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly life in this present evil age, which is full of wickedness, which is oftentimes full of brutal and painful and hard circumstances. How does it train me? How does it build the muscles of my soul? By keeping me focused on this blessed hope that makes all of the troubles and and trials of this world pale by comparison. Not even worthy to be compared. Right? This blessed hope that is guaranteed because of the superabounding grace of Jesus for me, which has fully turned away God's wrath and guaranteed me in eternity in the presence of His glory when He comes. Eternity. And that grace of that Savior who gave Himself for me redeems me, not just from everlasting hell, but also from lawlessness in my life right now. It purifies me. It makes me zealous for good works. And you say, well, I don't feel zealous for good works. I don't feel zealous to deal with my sin. Then focus on the grace more. Preach the gospel to yourself more. It purifies us as children of God who are saved by this grace. And listen, we all need that to happen. And, and we're out of time here. We need to be done. So... Um, Let me just leave you today with a quote from a section of Milton Vincent's little book called A Gospel Primer. It affirms all of this critically important gospel truth that that our hearts need to be trained for godliness and righteousness. Listen and receive these truths, all of which are emerging from the Word of God itself. It says this, God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor. Always working all things together for my ultimate eternal good, right? Hard circumstances, bitter providences. They don't mean that God doesn't care for you. They don't mean that God's mad at you. They don't mean that God's punishing you. 
They mean He loves you. And He's training you. Listen, when I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as He graciously maintains my justified status in the perfect work of Jesus. Amen? Listen, when I sin, God feels no wrath in His heart against me. Amen? His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. And He longs for me to repent and confess my sins to Him so that He might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in His heart towards me all along. In His heart, He's already forgiven me. And when I come to Him and confess my sins to Him, He runs to me, as it were, and is repeatedly embracing me even before I can get the words of confession out of my mouth. Yes, God does see my sins. Yes, God is grieved by my sins. And His grief comes partly from the fact that in my moment of sinning, I am not receiving the fullness of His love for me. Because when I do, it trains me to renounce the sin and to grow in righteousness. Amen? Let's pray to Him together today and and ask Him for confidence in His grace and that the fullness of His love will train us for godliness and for holiness. Our Father, this is our prayer that You would instill in our hearts such a confidence in Your love and such a gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Father, that You would show us how sinful we really are. That You would, that you would teach us not to make any bones about it and not to, not to candy coat the reality of of how wretched our sin is. So that, Father, You could teach us how rich and how deep Your love for us actually is and has been and always will be in Christ Jesus. And in that, Father, would You give us such gratitude and such freedom and such confidence that we would be filled with such a devotion to Your grace that it would train our hearts to hate sin and to love righteousness, and that it would fuel in us a passion and a zeal for godliness in our lives. And so, Father, in this way, keep us fixed on Jesus. May He be our vision. God, as You train us for righteousness and glorify Yourself in us and in Your church. We pray all of these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.